Hello. You have discovered the felon file. Formerly known as, The 542 and the Blue Podcast. Felonfile.com. Is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement. History, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File today is the 1944 murder of a Louisiana druggist in his own backyard. Lost Evidence and Unchallenged Confessions The Trial of a 15-Year-Old Defendant He was found guilty and executed. Twice Background Music Hard-Boiled Hosted by Purple Planet Scott, you're online. Greetings and welcome back to Felon File. As Victoria said, and by the way, thank you, Victoria, for getting us started. We are a podcast and discussion of law enforcement history, issues, incidents, court cases, good guys and bad guys, and other incidents that occurred in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Today, as Victoria said, we're looking at the 1944 murder of a Louisiana druggist in his own backyard. Lost evidence, unchallenged confessions. Uh, There was actually a trial. They located a suspect, a 15-year-old defendant. He was 15 years old at the time of the killing. He was found guilty and executed twice. Our Shade of Blue story for this Saturday starts in 1944, St. Martinville, Louisiana. Now on a fall night, several gunshots were heard in a quiet country neighborhood across from the Longfellow Evangeline State Park. Now, a war had engulfed the entire planet at this time. Like many communities, the war had brought temporary residents to St. Martin, as well as many other communities throughout the United States. For example, Hot Springs, North Carolina, had a World War II prison camp there. Uh, Hendersonville, North Carolina, also was known to have a, a temporary prison camp located. Two Locations very close to where this podcast is being recorded today. Locations I've used in a couple of my books and the stories that I've written. Now at Longfellow Evangeline State Park in Louisiana, two to three hundred German prisoners of war were housed there. The camp was built by the Department of Agriculture. The prisoners provided agricultural labor for the nearby farms. It's documented that a couple who lived nearby were awakened around midnight by five shots in rapid succession. The husband thought they were from an automatic weapon, thinking the shots had come from the POW camp, possibly due a prisoner attempted an escape. They also stated that the wife had observed car lights as a car drove away from their neighbor's house, Andrew Thomas. This activity was seen from their bedroom window. Now, instead of a prison break, it was discovered the next morning that a man had been murdered. Mr. Andrew Thomas, a bachelor in his mid-50s, he owned the drugstore there in town. Thomas was shot five times after driving his car 
into his garage late on the previous night of November 7th. His body was found lying on the sidewalk between the garage and the back porch of his home around 8 o'clock that next morning. The murder weapon, a revolver, was found not too far away from the crime scene. Now, a check of the weapon's serial number was soon able to trace the firearm and discovered that the pistol belonged to a local deputy sheriff in Martinsville. The deputy claimed that the pistol had been stolen from his vehicle months previously. And that's a possibility. But it's also noted in some of the documentation that apparently that deputy had a beef with the owner of the drugstore of some sort and had once threatened to kill Thomas. The murder weapon, of course, is an excellent piece of evidence in a homicide, or at least you would think it would be, and I guess it would have been in this case, but for one problem. The pistol and some of the bullets that were supposed to have been sent to the Federal Bureau of Investigation Laboratory in Washington, D.C. for examination disappeared. The sheriff later testified that the gun and the bullets got lost in the mail. Now, as the owner of the Thomas Drugstore, the murder investigation centered on the idea at first that the motive was robbery. Mr. Thomas's pockets were found to be empty and his wallet was missing. When Thomas failed to show up to open up his drugstore, somebody contacted his brother and his brother and his wife went to investigate. They were the ones that found the body. Now, observations at the crime scene reported in the press at the time indicated that there was some signs of a struggle and a fight, and Thomas was shot five times at close range. Now, interviews with Thomas's friends and neighbors came up with no one who could be thought of to be an enemy or who had a grudge against Thomas. Although it's puzzling that the issue of the deputy who had some sort of disagreement or made a threat against Thomas was not brought up in the case file. The neighbors who heard the gunshots knew of the drug store owner's friends, including two lady friends who lived across the bayou. During a coroner's inquest, when asked in particular for these young ladies' names, the witness declined to provide them, explaining both were married respected ladies in the community and because of that their names were never brought up again in the inquiry the implication of course was a possible motive of a jealous husband maybe seeking revenge but apparently this was not pursued very hard by the local police the murder remained unsolved for close to nine months in august of 1945 a suspect was located but not by local police, but by a police agency in the state of Texas. A 15-year-old African-American young man from St. Martinsville, while in Port Arthur, Texas, looking for work, had been picked up by police looking into criminal activity at the local train station. 15-year-old Willie Francis was detained in Texas because of his proximity to some unrelated crime or investigation of some sort, and Texas police said he was carrying Thomas's wallet in his pocket. 
though no evidence of this claim was entered into evidence at the trial or reported or documented in the court records. The 15-year-old was taken back to Louisiana. Home once again, the sheriff interviewed Francis. The sheriff reported to the press later that day that Willie Francis had confessed to the killing twice and the sheriff was awaiting the filing of formal charges. Now in his confessions, Francis initially named several others in connection with the murder, but the police dismissed those claims. A short time later, still under interrogation, Francis confessed to Thomas's murder writing, it was a secret about me and him. That's a direct quote from the statement. Again, he had no lawyer with him. The meaning of the statement is still uncertain. Now, author Gilbert King, in his book, The Execution of Willie Francis, published in 2008, he alludes to information that he obtained to rumors in St. Martinsville of a sexual abuse or assault on Willie Francis by the pharmacist. Francis had worked for the druggist and was alleged to have had an argument with his boss. That was documented and police listed this as the motive for the murder. It's also noted that Francis later directed the police to where he disposed of the holster used to carry the murder weapon. And of course, the gun used to kill Thomas had been found near the crime scene and had belonged to a deputy. Francis came from a family with 13 siblings. Uh, the family was trying to live on roughly $9 a week in income. And it was doubtful that the family owned a gun or even had access to one. And it's also doubtful that Francis would know how to accurately aim and shoot the pistol. The case went to trial pretty much immediately. Willie Francis pled not guilty, even with two confessions on file by the state. He pled not guilty over the objections of his court-appointed attorney. Now, During his trial, the court-appointed defense attorney offered no objections to anything the state said, called no witnesses, and put up no valid defense or a defense at all. The admissibility of Francis' confessions were also not questioned by the defense, even though the confessions, again, were made with no legal counsel at the time. Two days after the trial began, Francis was quickly convicted of murder and was sentenced to death by 12 jurors and the judge. This despite Francis having been at the age of 15 at the time of the crime. Of course, there were doubts about Francis's guilt, including the likelihood that the two confessions his conviction hinged on were coerced. His attorney did not appeal the verdict at all. There was also the point of the 15-year-old being someone inexperienced with firearms, as he would have been, hitting a target with a pistol. Thomas had been shot four times in the torso, twice in the right side, twice in the left, and once through the eye. On May 3, 1946, Francis was ordered to be executed by the electric chair. In a moment of efficiency and cost savings, instead of taking Francis to the chair, 
The state of Louisiana brought the chair to him. The 300-pound portable electric chair, known as Gruesome Gertie, was trucked into town. The device and a heavy-duty generator to run it was set up at the jail. Unfortunately, it was installed by an intoxicated prison guard and inmate from the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. Neither of them were electricians and basically apparently didn't know what they were doing at all. They were also the two individuals that were set to the, by the state to run the execution and be the executioners. Now, in affidavits filed after the execution, witnesses claimed both of them were drunk. The executioner was quoted as saying, Goodbye, Willie, and he flipped the switch, but the chair malfunctioned. According to affidavits filed by the witnesses, the first executioner yelled at his partner in the other room to give it more juice. The other yelled back that he was already giving it all he had. Apparently, they turned the switch off, then they turned it back on again, making an argument that Willie had been executed or attempted to be executed twice that day. Finally, Willie Francis screamed, Take it off! Let me breathe! Take it off! And he was taken back to his cell after being removed from the chair. And, of course, an electrician was sent for. The execution was rescheduled for the following week, just enough voltage went through Francis to cause to cause him a great deal of agony, but no, but not bring on death. He told the reporter, "My mouth tasted like cold peanut butter. I felt a burning in my head and my left leg, and I jumped against the straps." Yeah, photographs show that he jumped against the straps so forcefully that the 160-pound young man caused a 300-pound electric chair to actually make a quarter turn. Francis had survived the attempted execution. The sheriff was quoted as saying, This boy really got a shock when they turned that machine on. Amazing, isn't it? After this had all occurred, the Willie Francis case generated headlines overnight throughout the United States and parts of the world. The press dubbed him Lucky Willie. Several famous personalities like writer Walter Winchell and Father Flanagan of Boystown spoke out against the situation. And the NAACP launched a crusade aimed at preventing the state from trying to, ele to electrocute him again. Editorials in the national press chastised the Louisiana state and the governor, Jimmy Davis, the former country western singer, who you have probably heard his work but weren't aware of it. He wrote the song, You Are My Sunshine. Thousands of letters, telegrams, and postcards all urging clemency were sent to the governor's office. Willie Francis's family hired attorney Bertrand DeBlanc a St. Martinsville native, who agreed to take the case for two sacks of potatoes. DeBlanc had actually been the best friend and a close associate of the murder victim, Thomas, and his decision to represent his accused murder was puzzling to the people in the small town. 
be it as it may, his argument was that a second electrocution constituted double jeopardy and cruel and unusual punishment. He took Francis's case all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. The case Francis versus Louisiana Restweber, citing various violations of Francis's Fifth, Eighth, and Fourteenth Amendment rights. Of course, this is equal protection of double jeopardy and cruel and unusual punishment. The U.S. Supreme Court rejected the appeal. The Supreme Court justices were split four to four, and it was settled when one of the justices, in a decision that would probably remain troubling to him for the rest of his life, sided with the state, ruling that the execution should be carried out. Justice Frankfurter did work behind the scenes trying to get Francis' sentence changed to life in prison. In this decision, the court held that accidents happen for which no man is to blame. I don't know about that. And that such an accident with no suggestion of malevolence did not violate the Constitution. How about showing up drunk to install an electric chair? I think I can make a good argument for that in that it might have violated the Constitution myself with no law degree. Less than 24 hours before Francis's scheduled second execution, his lawyers tried to bring the case back before the Supreme Court. They had obtained affidavits from witnesses stating that the two executioners from Angola, the state prison, were, as one of the witnesses put it in his affidavit, so drunk it would have been impossible for them to have known what they were doing. Although the court rejected this last-minute appeal, it noted that given the nature of these new allegations, and they encouraged the lawyers to pursue the matter in state court, as required by law, and then bring it back to the Supreme Court. But unfortunately, Willie Francis was executed the next morning before state courts could look at it. And it was Willie Francis himself who had called it off. They are not going to let me live, he repeatedly told his attorney. Subsequently, Willie Francis was returned to the electric chair on May 9, 1947. He told a reporter and Elliot Chaz days prior to the execution that he was going to meet the Lord with his Sunday pants and Sunday heart. Willie was pronounced dead in the chair on May 9, 1947 at 12.10 p.m. Now this case would still be argued and referenced to for years over its legality. But the question still remains, before the court case, did he do it? Any small town skeleton worth hiding is worth hiding well, even 60 years after the fact. Research by documentary producers and writers have brought up other information in light, although being too late to help Willie. A local librarian who was interviewed by one researcher was 15 years old at the time of the execution. She remembered vividly the noise made by the portable generator brought to the jail to power the electric chair. One writer looking for someone to represent the black community of St. Martinsville at the time 
to go on record about the crime and punishment, asked the mayor, a Mr. Eric Martin, to point him in the right direction. The mayor suggested that he talk to a Mr. Cabby Charles, that he would be a good person to interview. Now, Nolan Cabby Charles had been the local justice of peace in that area for the past 30 years when he was interviewed. He was not only adamant about Willie Francis' innocence, but offered as proof an incident from his own childhood. At the time of Thomas's murder, Cabby Charles was 10 years old and working in a private home in town for money to help his family. Not unusual at that time period for a 10-year-old to be doing that. On the morning of the murder, he was washing breakfast dishes when Charles overheard a distraught young man in the house say he had been involved with two others that he named. He was involved in a plot with them to do something to someone. This individual was the nephew of Charles's boss. And apparently he had chickened out the night before the whatever it was was supposed to happen. Was that morning suffering an attack of conscience at being involved right up to the last moment? His hysteria grew when the news came about the murder near the park. Ten-year-old Charles couldn't wait to get home and tell his mother what he had heard. Horrified and fearful for his safety, Mom had admonished her son, telling him, Keep his mouth shut. Don't say nothing to nobody which is what he did, and he was able to keep quiet for close to 30-some years until the day he saw Willie Francis' sister in town visiting from Detroit. Compelled to tell her what he had overheard that morning, he stated that he felt like a burden had been finally taken away. Francis's sister also revealed that 30 years beforehand, a white neighbor of her family implicated the same two men that that Charles had overheard about. But of course, this was too late to help Willie Francis. He was executed. Now this was not the only messed up execution in US history. The first of these landmark cases that ended up getting a lot of controversy and review in the uh, United States Supreme Court would have been possibly 1879 case of Wilkerson versus Utah. This case was cited by Clarence Thomas in a more modern decision by the Supreme Court. He wrote that the court had no difficulty concluding that death by a firing squad did not amount to cruel and unusual punishment, but added Mr. Wallace Wilkerson, the executed individual, might just begged to differ if he was still alive. You see, once the Supreme Court had affirmed Utah's right to execute by firing squad, Wilkerson was led into a courtyard where he declined to be blindfolded. The sheriff gave the command to fire and Wilkerson braced for the impact of the bullets. The bullets did hit home, but they hit him in his arm and his torso not in his heart. It's reported he screamed out, my God, my God, they have missed. And it took more than 27 minutes 
to go by as Wilkerson slowly bled to death in front of all the witnesses and a helpless doctor. Just 11 years later, the Supreme Court heard the case of William Kimmler, who had been sentenced to death by electric chair in New York. The court, in affirming the state's right to execute Kimmler, ruled that the electrocution reduced substantial risks of pain or a lingering death when compared with other executions, in particular execution by hanging. Now, Kimmler, had he lived through the ensuing execution, and he nearly did, might have to disagree after a thousand volts of current struck him on August 6, 1890, and the smell of burnt flesh permeated the room, nauseating all the witnesses. Still breathing, but with spit drooling down from his mouth and down his beard as he gasped for air, nauseated witnesses and the sheriff in tears burst from the room as Kimmler's coat caught on fire along with his beard and he burned. Electricity was applied again, but minutes passed as the current built to a lethal voltage. Some witnesses thought uh, Kemmler was about to regain consciousness, but eight long minutes later he was pronounced dead. Now if you're looking for more information on Willie Francis, if you Google his name you can find photographs taken of him just before his second execution or electrocution. A photographer acting in very poor taste gave him a calendar with the date of his execution, upcoming execution, circled. Francis was convinced to hold the calendar with one hand and cross his fingers with the other and pose for the picture. If you do look up the images on the internet, closely examine his face. Look into his eyes to see the truth in his face. It may have a very startling impact on you. Also, for more information, you, you can read Arthur Gilbert King's book, The Execution of Willie Francis. Uh, I would recommend it. It's, very, it's a very good book and well worth reading. Again, even with all of that, is justice fair? Is it right all the time? Well, justice is controlled by man, and man is not infallible, unfortunately. Is the death penalty right or wrong? There are numerous arguments on the topic. But turnabout is fair play. I don't think we should be looking at justice along those lines. However, if you execute a person for taking the life of another person, you are guaranteeing the likelihood that that person will not take another life. Now, is that thought worth taking a life? Think about it. Come to your own decision. In the meantime, thank you for listening to Felon File. You can find me on felonfile.com uh, with links to this podcast and other information and links to copies of my books that are available online and purchased from amazon.com. My first book, Cop and Coin, is still available. Cop and Call and Cop and Copperhead, the third book in the 
Asheville Cop series, mystery books that I've written so far. Also, my young people's books, The Girls from Gift, G-I-F-T, Girls Investigating Fantastic Things, kind of a Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew type experience for young readers. Also available through Amazon.com and through my website. We appreciate you listening. Remember, come back next Saturday for another Felon File and Shade of Blue story. And if you'd like to listen to some more, backtrack. I've got all the podcasts, the previous podcasts are available to listen to. And some of them are better than others. If you like one, drop me a line, let me know. If you got an idea for a possible podcast, you can contact me through the website or send me an email at felonfile at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. And also check out some of the coffee mugs and t-shirts we've got to help pay for some of the bills. Alrighty, remember, in the coming weeks, be safe, be secure. And hopefully this pandemic thing is on its way out. And if you have the opportunity, remember, do something nice for somebody. Do something right. It's the right thing to do. And it will make you feel good. And will help somebody in the long run. All right, Victoria, we're about through. Go ahead and close us out. Hopefully we'll be back next Saturday with with another story on Felon File. Thanks for listening. Bye, y'all. You have been listening to the Felon File Podcast with your host, Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com. Scott can also be contacted at these web pages. This is Victoria, your producer. Thank you for listening. 2. 1. N. I almost forgot. If you would like to support the Felon File podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com backslash felonfile. Here you can buy Scott a cup of coffee or help purchase some of the research material and expenses that it takes to do Felon File. That's buymeacoffee.com backslash felonfile. Once more thank you for listening.